Hello, everyone, and welcome to the November 3rd edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The WCAB affirmed a workers' compensation judge's order for a lien claimant to personally appear at a hearing. Here's what happened in the panel decision of Diaz versus Sambrelio. Ana Diaz filed a claim for injuries allegedly sustained to her right shoulder, right arm, right hand, fingers, and lower back. Some of the alleged injuries were accepted by Zenith Insurance Company as industrial, and her claim was resolved by compromise and release in April 2014. Several outstanding lien claims remained unresolved, and the matter was set for lien conference this August. Hearing Representative Javier Jimenez appeared at the lien conference on behalf of the lien claimant California Imaging, who filed a lien for photocopy services. Zenith contended that California Imaging was not a properly licensed professional photocopier as required by the Business and Professions Code. Hearing Representative Javier Jimenez was unable to respond to Zenith's contention and appeared unfamiliar with the file. Mr. Jimenez advised the work comp judge that his only authority was to set the matter for lien trial. Mr. Jimenez named Maria Rubio Trujillo as the person most knowledgeable about these issues. He further stated that the proper name of the lien claimant, California Imaging, was actually San Diego Imaging. The lien conference was continued to August 22nd, and Maria Trujillo was ordered to personally appear in order to explain the lien claimant's billing address, the licensing issue, and explain the relationship between California Imaging and San Diego Imaging. Trujillo's petition for reconsideration and for removal followed this order. Trujillo complained that she had personal and family responsibilities as well as work duties that would be severely and unreasonably impacted by her personal appearance in Oxnard. She contended, in essence, that the order was an abuse of discretion and a product of bias against her and the lien claimant, California Imaging, by the work comp judge. The WCAB dismissed the petition for reconsideration as there was no final order subject to reconsideration and it denied removal and affirmed the order that she should appear in Oxnard. The Workers' Compensation Appeals Board and individual work comp judges have broad power to do all things necessary or convenient to fully adjudicate the disputed issues and to ascertain the substantial rights of the parties and carry out justly the spirit and provisions of the Labor Code. This includes the inherent power to control the WCAB's practice and procedure to prevent frustration, abuse, or disregard of its processes, which in turn includes the power to order the personal appearance of parties at hearings. The representative for the lien claimant, California Imaging, was unable to respond to reasonable inquiries regarding the licensing issue, nor was he able to provide more basic information, such as an explanation or clarification of the disputed billing. The work comp judge was therefore unable to meaningfully discuss the issues with the parties or determine whether there were disputes that required a lien trial. 
It was therefore within the judge's discretion to require the lien claimant's person most knowledgeable to appear so that a meaningful conference could be held. The WCB also ruled that Sub Rosa film was admissible despite no trespassing signs having been posted nearby. Here's what happened in the case of Duong versus the Automobile Club of Southern California. Jonathan Duong sustained an industrial injury to his spine. The sole issue framed for trial on a discovery dispute was the defendant's request for an order permitting it to provide surveillance videos to medical legal evaluators. Applicant asserted that the films violate his right to privacy and therefore are not admissible and should not be provided to the doctors. An investigator testified that he conducted surveillance of the applicant by following him first along the street and later by entering the driveway to a mobile home park. He entered and parked in the visitor parking space and filmed applicant entirely from the car. The investigator said that there were no signs regarding private property or trespassing that he observed from the street when he entered the driveway and that he understood that the mobile home park was not applicant's place of residence. He also filmed him inside an Albertson's grocery store. Applicant offered evidence of a photograph containing an Albertson's logo and the words, no videotaping, photography, audio taping, anywhere on store premises without prior consent. The owner of the mobile home park testified that there are two signs at each entrance that read, invitees and guests only, no trespassing, violators will be prosecuted. There are also signs that say private property. This witness was applicant's adoptive father and his mobile home unit is the fifth from the street. The work comp judge excluded the Sub Rosa video evidence finding that the filming was accomplished in a manner that violated the rules of both properties and the surveillance company itself. But the WCAB granted reconsideration and removal, ruling that the Sub Rosa video is admissible and ordering that it may be provided to any medical legal evaluator or treating physician. The panel reasoned that applicant did not establish any statutory restriction that prevents defendants, private investigators, from obtaining Sub Rosa video in apparent violation of rules posted by private property owners. The WCAB did not agree that applicant had a reasonable expectation of privacy in either the parking lot of the mobile home park or inside of Albertsons. Generally, there is no reasonable expectation of privacy in settings where activities are conducted in an open and accessible space within the sight and hearing of the general public or of customers or visitors to that open and accessible space or in areas of commercial premises that are open to the public. In this case, the private investigator filmed applicant in the parking area of a mobile home park and inside an Albertsons grocery store. Applicant did not reside at the mobile home park, but was there visiting his adoptive father. There was no evidence that the mobile home park is a gated community, that the general public is excluded by the use of a gate or security, or 
that the parking area is somehow shielded from view of the street. This is especially true where members of the public can freely drive into the common parking area and where the parking area of the home he was visiting was only five houses from the street. The WCAB found even if there was an expectation of privacy at Albertsons where the applicant was filmed in a commercial area open to the public, there was less of an expectation there. And now our fraud report. Castro Valley orthopedic surgeon Douglas J. Abels has been arrested on 31 fraud-related felonies for his alleged role in an insurance fraud scheme occurring out of his East Bay business office. The investigation was conducted jointly by the Alameda County District Attorney's Office and the California Department of Insurance. The criminal complaint alleges that for several years, he falsely and fraudulently billed insurance companies for medical services that were not provided. In addition to his orthopedic medical practice in Castro Valley, he also owned and operated at least four other medically related businesses. Abley's allegedly formed Physicians Rx Network Incorporated in 2005. PRXN contracted with physicians who dispense prescribed drugs, including prescription compound creams, to bill the insurance companies on behalf of these physicians. In late 2010, Ablees went into this urine analysis business, forming Redwood Laboratory Management and Redwood Laboratory Associates. RLM contracted with physicians for urine drug testing of patients and billing insurance companies on behalf of the physicians for this drug testing. In May of 2011, Ablees formed another business, PRXN Toxicology. Some of his employees complained about improprieties in PRXN billings, particularly about overbilling insurance companies for prescription drug compounds. Abelese allegedly sent an email to them that said, if any employee further implies any wrongdoing to anyone, they are to be let go immediately on grounds of insubordination and libel. We cannot operate a successful company with this kind of mutiny, he said. His company billed for a urine toxicology review and purported that the physician that ordered the urine test spent 45 minutes reviewing medical records. This activity allegedly did not take place and the billing was fraudulent. There were over 10,200 of these reports stored in a computer seized by authorities. Abelese posted $355,000 in bail. It is reported that his companies have over $1 million in pending workers' compensation liens. A San Gabriel Valley doctor has pleaded not guilty to federal drug trafficking charges that allege he illegally distributed drugs that include the powerful and addictive painkiller oxycodone. 47-year-old Daniel Cham was arraigned on a 31-count indictment and a trial was scheduled for December 16. Bond was set at $140,000 and Cham was ordered to serve home detention while free on bond and was prohibited from practicing medicine. 
If convicted of the 31 counts, Cham would face a statutory maximum sentence of 339 years in federal prison. The indictment returned by a federal grand jury charges him with drug trafficking, money laundering, fraud, and making false statements to federal authorities. The indictment focuses on prescriptions Chom wrote at various locations, including his medical offices in La Puente and Artesia. The drugs involved in the allegedly illegal prescriptions include oxycodone, hydrocodone, Xanax, and Soma. According to court documents, the doctor often saw patients between 8 p.m. and 2 a.m. on Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays, and then he post-dated prescriptions to make them appear to have been written on weekdays. He issued more than 42,000 prescriptions for controlled services. An undercover officer made three visits to Chom's La Puente office earlier this year, and Chom wrote prescriptions in exchange for either $200 or $300 in cash or money orders. Chom allegedly used at least four bank accounts to launder the proceeds of his illegal prescriptions. The investigation was conducted by multiple federal and state agencies. And in regulatory news, the DIR has posted proposed changes to regulations that implement the Return to Work Supplement Program, one of the workers' compensation reforms mandated by SB 863. This program is intended to provide supplemental payments to workers whose permanent disability benefits are disproportionately low in comparison to their earnings loss. Public hearings on the proposed regulations have been scheduled on December 8 from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. at 1515 Clay Street in Oakland and on December 9 from 1.30 p.m. to 4.30 p.m. at 320 West 4th Street, Suite 500 in Los Angeles. Members of the public may also submit written comment on the regulations until 5 p.m. on December 9. To be eligible for the benefit, an individual must have a work-related injury that results in an inability to return to the work they were doing at the time of the injury. An individual who receives the Return to Work Supplement may not receive a second Return to Work Supplement unless that individual returns to the workforce and suffers an additional injury. The Supplemental Job Displacement Benefit Voucher triggers the application process for the Return to Work Supplement program. That voucher is on a mandated form. The proposed regulations requires that the voucher include now a notice that the individual may be eligible for the Return to Work Supplement and is intended to provide information about that program. Claim adjusters will have to use the new voucher 30 days after these regulations become effective. An application for the Return to Work Supplement must be received by the Return to Work Supplement program within one year from the date the voucher was served on the individual. The application shall be made on the electronic form on the DIR website and shall be signed under penalty of perjury. The DIR then has 60 days to make a decision on an application. The Return to Work Supplement program will provide a supplemental payment of $5,000 to each eligible individual. 
The amount of this supplement may be adjusted by the director from time to time based upon further studies. Appeals of decisions concerning the return to work supplement shall be handled at the Workers' Compensation Appeals Board trial level. Following a public hearing on July 1 and a review of comments from a previous 15-day public comment period, the DWSA has made additional revisions to its copy service fee schedule regulations. Members of the public are invited to present written comments regarding the proposed modifications. Proposed revisions include reinstating authorizations into the fee schedule to avoid a loophole that would have allowed for billing outside the schedule. Additionally, authorizations have been defined including stating the specific uses and limitations on the type of information to be disclosed and a specific date after which the provider is no longer authorized to disclose the information. Changes were also made clarifying the regulations regarding records obtained from the Workers' Compensation Insurance Rating Bureau and the Employment Development Department. Claims adjusters will not be liable for subpoenaed records from the WCIRB and the EDD when such records can be obtained without a subpoena at lower cost. $20 is allowed for records from the EDD and $30 allowed for records from the WCIRB. The public can access WCIRB coverage information for employers for the past five years for free online. For coverage information beyond the past five years, the WCIRB charges $10 per year of coverage requested by way of a coverage research service request. Over the last several years, the WCIRB has seen a marked increase in the number of subpoenas received requesting coverage information for cases before the WCAB. The number jumped from a low of approximately 1,300 in 2010 to a record high of 4,000 in 2013, 90% of which were to determine the identity of the insurer for a specific employer. This was information readily available to the public at no cost on the WCIRB's coverage website. Unemployment Insurance Code Section 2111 provides that the EDD is only authorized to provide EDD records only if the EDD has an existing lien in the WCAB case. If the EDD does not have a lien, then no records can be provided even if the EDD receives a subpoena. If EDD has a lien, the records can be obtained for free upon request from the injured worker's attorney. Attorneys can also request records with an authorization signed by the injured worker for $15. Speakers at the 2014 California Association of Joint Powers Authorities Conference held in Lake Tahoe claim that early proactive care from high-performing physicians produces superior outcomes at lower costs. Gregory Moore, president and CEO of Harbor Health Systems, and Douglas Benner, MD, chief medical officer of EK Health, presented both data and best practices to the audience of insurance-based risk-sharing pool executives. Moore said the purpose of the study was to determine whether claims outcomes were impacted by delays in care and whether accelerating care created unintended consequences. 
The study reviewed information for more than 700,000 claims for four procedures, anterior cruciate ligament repair, knee meniscectomy, shoulder rotator cuff repair, and carpal tunnel injuries. He claims that there is evidence that identifying high-performing doctors and letting them practice assertive medicine produces the best outcomes, lowers costs, and shortens claims duration. The strategy produced reductions in claim durations from 13 to 20 percent, reductions in indemnity costs from 19 to 61 percent, and reductions in litigation from 7.2 to 16%. A free white paper highlighting the impact of aggressive medical care in workers' compensation is now available. A panel discussion at the American Society for Healthcare Risk Management's annual conference in Anaheim this month covered the advantages and disadvantages of self-administration of healthcare benefits for injured workers in the healthcare industry. Speakers claimed that self-administration of workers' compensation claims can be a favorable option for healthcare organizations to track how their workers are being treated. At the same time, workers' comp claims managers said Third-party administrators can aid health systems that manage comp claims in multiple states. The executive director of BJC Corporate Health Services said the nonprofit healthcare provider used a TPA to manage work comp claims before 2005, but it moved to administering its own workers' comp claims because it allowed the parent of 12 hospitals and other medical facilities to effectively treat injured workers and reduce its costs while the TBA previously focused primarily on just costs. The healthcare provider is self-insured and has 28,000 employees and about 5,000 volunteers eligible for workers' comp. The director of integrated disability management at Sutter Health in Sacramento agreed that self-administration has been favorable for his company, which is self-insured and has about 50,000 employees. The Senior Director of Associate Risk Management Programs at the Risk Management Division of Ascension Health said, the healthcare provider's workers' comp claims are administered by a TPA. Working with a large TPA has helped Ascension manage the nuances and legal charges in workers' comp systems across the country. The health system, which is self-insured, has 155,000 employees in 23 states and Washington. For them, a large TPA worked very well because of the sheer size of their program. Organizations that use TPAs to manage workers' comp claims should follow Ascension's example by integrating TPA claims handlers with internal staff. Claim staff should be treated like they were one of your own employees. The Berkeley City Council studied a report intended to help reduce its injuries and workers' compensation claims. This study was part of an annual risk assessment plan. It recommended several ways to more efficiently document injuries, including sharing information with the Human Resources Department and redefining how injuries are classified in reports. The new practices would help city management identify trends and develop measures to prevent further injuries. The audit is part of an effort to reduce workers' comp costs throughout the city. 
In fiscal year 2013, the city spent more than $6 million on workers' compensation and 200 new claims were filed. Some of the report's recommendations have been partially implemented, while all are expected by 2015. And in medical news, researchers at Western University have identified a specific gene that plays a key role in the degradation of cartilage and osteoarthritis. The study, published in the journal Arthritis and Rheumatology, showed that when the gene P. pardelta was removed from cartilage, the progression of post-traumatic osteoarthritis was considerably slower. This promising new research may be the first step to identifying new treatments. This gene is an important player in the pathogenesis of the disease and therefore might be a potential therapeutic target. Post-traumatic osteoarthritis, which is triggered by a specific injury, makes up 10 to 15% of all cases of the disease and affects a younger, more active portion of the population. The current thinking is that what happens in those first hours after the injury can have a long-term impact. This research shows a possible window for drugs to be used right after the injury happens to slow the onset of the cartilage degradation associated with osteoarthritis. These research findings may also help to explain the link between obesity and osteoarthritis. It has been long been known that obesity is one of the major risk factors and the conventional thinking was that the link was associated with the increased load on joints. However, recent evidence suggests that the chemical signals circulating in the body contribute to osteoarthritis risk in obese patients. Because P. pardelta is activated by fatty molecules, Lipids from a high-fat diet could directly activate the pathway that allows P. bardelta to break down cartilage. In the future, modulation of P. bardelta through diet changes as opposed to drugs could also be a strategy to prevent osteoarthritis. Apportionment of permanent impairment in California workers' compensation is based upon causation. Genetic research seems to be creating more and more opportunities to develop theories upon which apportionment can be based. That is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, for past editions of our news, and for much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Scarron and Kelly. Thanks for having joined us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.